I want to invite you to take your Bibles with me to John chapter 6 this morning, John 6. As you're turning there, I've got a question for you to ponder on. How many of you have ever come to the end of a conversation and you thought, ugh, that was really hard to hear? Now, some of you are like, yeah, that's me every day. I just can't hear what somebody's saying to me. No, okay, I'm not talking about hard to hear it, um, not hard to understand it, but hard to accept it. Um, we've all been in those conversations before. I, I don't like those kind of conversations where you come to the end and you're like, oh, that was hard to hear. That was hard to receive, and that is hard to accept. How many of you have ever been in those kind of conversations? You've been on the receiving end. How many of you will join me by saying, yes, that's been me. We don't enjoy it, but it happens. That's what's taking place in John chapter number 6. In John 6, we find Jesus is in the northern part of Israel. He has traveled to the region of Galilee. Um, if you remember back a few weeks ago, we studied intentional conversation. And uh, while he was in Judea, he was doing miracles, he was teaching, he had called his disciples to follow him. And, uh, and so there was a lot of movement and a lot of things going on in the life and ministry of Jesus in Judea. But uh, his miracles and his teaching was causing quite the ruckus. And, uh, and so he decides that it's time to travel north and to take his ministry focus to the north region of Israel. And so remember in John chapter 4, the focus said he must needs go through Samaria. And this was a pointed task. It was, an, it was a God moment. And so he left Judea region, went through Samaria, stopped, had the intentional conversation with the woman at the well, and then continued on to Galilee. So when we get to Galilee, we're going to find that he has left his hometown region. He's gone to the area like the, the Sea of Galilee. He's gone to uh, uh, Capernaum and, and some of those cities and some of those areas. He's going to continue his, his mission, his ministry, um, people, miracles, he's going to do teaching, um, and he's going to invest in people. And so when we pick up in John chapter number six, uh, we're finding some really interesting things that are going on. Uh, and John six becomes one of his uh, most incredible miracles, probably one of the, the largest miracles or the audience that would see this and experience what took place with this miracle. It's the feeding of the 5,000 plus. Um, after he performs this miracle, he's going to have a discourse, a message, a sermon, a teaching moment that he uses to engage with the people's minds and with their hearts. Now, when we look at this miracle in John chapter number six, it's only the fourth of seven miracles that John would record. Now, remember the purpose, the goal of the gospel of John is to allow Jesus Christ to prove, to show, to demonstrate his deity, that he is God in, in man form. Every bit of who Jesus is, is God himself. And so the miracles that John would even record are going to be miracles that are going to prove his deity through and through. And so we come to this fourth miracle. And, and by the way, when we say synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is only one of two miracles that John records that are also in the synoptic gospels. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it seems like every page you turn, here's a new miracle. Here's a new miracle. Well, John limited it to seven by the inspiration of God, lists just seven that really hones in and focuses on the deity of Christ. The only other miracle that John records that is also in the Synoptic Gospels is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So these two will correspond, the resurrection of Christ and the feeding of the 5,000 correspond with some miracles that are taking place in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, as chapter 5, we would see as it goes, as a great miracle is performed and then a discourse is given, a message, a sermon, and chapter 6 is going to follow suit to that. 
So when we come to chapter 6, we see this incredible miracle that we've been talking about. And he is now going to follow the feeding of the 5,000 with a discourse, a message, a sermon, an engagement of the mind and heart with the followers on the discourse of the bread of life. Jesus Christ has given them, led them with physical bread, fish, to eat, and now he's going to lead them spiritually about this eternal bread of life that Jesus Christ will provide. So he's going to feed them this spiritual truth, and we would find that whoever will take of this spiritual truth, in verse number 51 of chapter 6, he says, I am the living bread, these are the words of Jesus, which came down from heaven. Well, right away, and that statement alone is going to cause some, some uproar, some problems. Remember the Jewish leaders, remember the, the Pharisees, uh, they did not like the very thought or fact that Jesus was claiming to be God and that he was sent down from heaven, that he was the son of God. So right away, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So we would think, well, that's a, that's a pretty powerful statement. It's a reassuring statement to us on this side of the story because now thousands of years later, we live in that eternal security by partaking of the bread of life and that eternal security that we called to worship with this morning from John 10. But John's disciples, now we're in our text for today, many, many, therefore, of his disciples. Now, we're not saying 12 disciples and a majority of them. No, we're... We're talking disciples as followers of, uh, typically the disciple would have been a follower of a religious teacher. They would not only would have been a student of their teaching and they would have been learning, but they also would have traveled with them. So the scripture teaches us many times of different disciples. We would see that uh, John the baptizer had these disciples who would learn under his teaching. They would travel with him. We would find the Pharisees would have their disciples. They were learning. They were engaging in the teaching and truth that they were giving from the Old Testament law. They would follow and travel with them. Moses would have some disciples. Paul had some disciples. So I know that right away when we think of disciples, we're all of a sudden thinking the 12, okay? John is going to kind of differentiate here in this passage who these disciples are and then who the 12 are. So when we, when we read verse 60, many therefore of his disciples, these are just the people that have been following place to place. Remember, before the uh, feeding of the 5,000, there was a large group of people that, that ran to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to meet Jesus and his disciples. And so this multitude was just growing. They would listen to his teaching. They would watch his miracles. They were learning under his leadership and so that now, verse 60, many therefore of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, does this offend you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the spirit that quickeneth, maketh alive, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. What are these words? Well, all through this discourse of chapter number 6 from verse 22 through 59, he says, verse 64, but there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my father. From that time, many of his disciples went back 
and walk no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, will you also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake, of course, of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, even being one of the twelve. Today, we look at this passage of scripture following the discourse of the bread of life, the rejection by many followers, and we're going to look at live like Jesus with this missional discipleship in mind. Father, we come before you. We're thankful for what the music has done to prepare our hearts. With every line of lyric, it has drawn our attention to who you are and who we are because of you. So we thank you for that amazing truth. Now, this morning, as we dig into your word, I pray that you would set aside the distractions of our own life that cause us to be weighted down and our minds to wander. I know we bring a lot to to the plate today. Many of us are tired or weary or just discouraged or overwhelmed. But Lord, we just would ask that you would free us from those, those thoughts so that we can pull up the chair and we can be fed from you today. We show our full dependency on you alone We want to be challenged in our Christian life. If there's anybody here today that's putting their trust in themselves for eternal life, anybody in here who is a rejection or rejecting the gospel and the good news, may today be that day as a seeker that they come to you. Draw them to yourself. Bring them Holy Spirit conviction and save their soul today for all eternity. So we look forward to what you're going to accomplish because of your power and because of your work. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we said before, when we look at this text in verse number 60, the word disciple gives us an understanding that this is many people, many people who were following, many people who were watching, many people who were listening to what Jesus was doing. And a very revealing reaction comes from the crowd because many of them were stirred up in their heart. They were disgruntled, they were murmuring, and they did not like what they were hearing. A very revealing reaction comes when they are saying that this is a hard saying to hear. That's why at the very beginning I said, how many of us have ever been on the receiving end that says that was just hard to hear? Not that we didn't comprehend it or understand it or even just literally hear it, but that we digested it and it was hard to accept. That's where these disciples are. And as we've studied our series intentionally and missionally, we only have a couple more messages today, maybe next week, and then Easter Sunday, looking at this mission that Jesus Christ lived by. And one of those missions was not only the calling of 12 disciples to follow him, but also through the multitude of crowd that would follow him from place to place, watch the miracles and hear the teaching, he was also seeking to save those which were lost. And so the call to discipleship was very clear. It was a mission of Christ from God the Father sent here to earth to accomplish and to do. But he also knew with his omniscience that there were many who would reject this. Yet though he knew they would reject him, he still remained faithful. He still stayed at the chorus. He never wavered and never became discouraged. Always stayed right at the task, on mission and on point. And so what do we learn from the encounter with Jesus here in this text? Is that in these first seven verses, verse 60 through 66, is that the description of these disciples is that they were fraudulent disciples. You see, it's no wonder that these people found the bread of life discourse to be a very difficult thing to swallow and one that was hard to accept. 
in verse number 60, this Greek word that says hard is, is again, it's not hard to understand, but hard for them to receive or hard for them to accept and to buy into. So the disciples knew quite well that Jesus had been claiming to be the very life of God that was sent down from heaven. They knew this all along. The Jews in verse number 41 murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. The Pharisees had problem. The religious leaders hated what Jesus was doing. People always combated what Christ was accomplishing. They did not like what he stood for, and they certainly did not like the call to true discipleship. So when rubber meets the road, these disciples really were not willing to accept this call. They were fine with sacrificing some time to run ahead so that they could hopefully see the next miracle. You would see them writing in their journal on the hillside by the Sea of Galilee as he would break bread, break fish, and distribute and still have baskets left over to collect. They were like, wow, my kids are not going to believe this until I write it in my journal and pass it on. They would hear the teachings and the discourse, the messages, the interaction. They would watch Jesus with his inner core of disciples. He would see how things would unfold day in and day out. And they wanted every part of the visual sense because they liked what they saw. But then when it came down for their sacrifice, they were not willing to accept it. When it came to realizing that Jesus Christ was God, that he was a gift sent from heaven, they did not want to have any part of that. They just wanted Jesus to be a part of their entertainment field. They wanted him to be a part of everything else that they would focus on. Yesterday, I had an interaction with a gentleman who, uh, within conversation, we began to discuss about God, the things of God, and, and salvation. An older gentleman probably... I hate to say older gentleman and then give an age because then you're like, oh, everybody, he thinks I'm old, okay? So um, he was a younger gentleman in his late 60s, early 70s, and, uh, and, uh, and so we began to have conversation. Well, he told me that he's going on a trip in the, in the Middle East, and, uh, and he was going to travel from place to place, and uh, he was going to uh, see a lot of different things and experience a lot of different things. And we got to talking a little bit about religion. It just kind of came up with his, with his angle. So I took the open door, began to ask some engaging questions. He didn't know that I was a Baptist preacher and uh, certainly didn't know that I was a pastor. And so I was just giving him conversation. He said that he believes in God. I thought, okay, we're headed in the right direction. And then he says, but I also believe that there are many Jesuses, Jesuses, I guess you'd say it. He said, I think there's a lot of ways to heaven. He said, I've traveled the world and I've, I've sat down with, with uh, Muslims, with Islam, and I've sat down with Hindus, and I've sat down with Jehovah's Witnesses, and he, he just listed. And because it's really, and I said, well, sir, I said, that's kind of a little bit where we would disagree because you're really off base because it's really what will you do with Jesus? Because every other religion out there wants to tell you that there's multiple ways. I said, but Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And I said, so your eternal salvation is only going to be found in Jesus Christ, not that you believe in God, because I said the demons believe in God, the devil believes that there's a God, I said, but they're not putting their trust in one Jesus Christ as the only way. Oh, he didn't really like that, and so we began to continue to have interaction with this conversation. He even used the whole trump card here where he said, well, how do you then defend that if uh, Ted Bundy can do all of his killing and all of his uh, immoral acts and wickedness and then come to the end and blink his eyes and all of a sudden he's saved? And I said, well, that's, that's not what happened. 
And uh, before I could give him an explanation of God's amazing grace and the fact and reality that we are just as guilty before God as a Ted Bundy ever was guilty before God, um, before I could even explain that, he was already hot in, he- in the head and headed out the door. This was a gentleman who even would look me in the eyes and say that his mother has told him how much she's burdened for his soul, that he was put his trust in Jesus Christ alone. And I said, well, sir, that's really what it comes down to. Just last year, I sat by the hospital bed of an 80-something-year-old man who had put his trust in his own good works, looked at himself as being too wicked and sinful and couldn't do anything on his own. I said, but he finally came to that place where he gave it all up and put his trust in Jesus Christ for eternal salvation. I said, your mom's burdened for you to do that as well. He laughed and mocked and said, well, she can pray all she wants. I'm going to be okay. He flaunted his millions and told me all about the luxurious life he lives. But the sad reality is I told him before he left, sir, one day you will bow before Jesus Christ and you will claim that he alone is Jesus Christ our Lord. So the sad truth is that that's all around us. That's the reality of the people that we interact with day in and day out. I was not offended, I was not hot, I was not heated, I was not upset. I simply was burdened for a man who has clearly rejected Jesus Christ. He's a fraudulent disciple. He says he believes in a God, and he believes in all world religions. Yet that's a man that one day will burn eternity in hell until he puts his trust in Jesus Christ. That burdens our heart for people. Because the devil, the enemy, wants to dupe people. He deceives. He craftfully deceives people. And he'll use every level of of moral likeness. He'll do everything he can to try to make people feel safe and secure in where they're at. Understand that Christianity, following Christ, is not about being Christians, is the height of Christ's moral demand. They don't want to give up their rights and their rulership. They do not want to surrender. When you think of Christianity, we're following Jesus Christ. The real difficulty of Christianity is twofold. It demands an act of surrender to Christ. It is, it's an acceptance of him as the final authority in our life. And then secondly, it demands a moral standard of the highest level. People think that if they give their life to Jesus Christ in full surrender, that they'll have to uh, be miserable and sad and won't live life to the fullest and have joy. Sometimes I wonder why they've come up with that conclusion. And then I see their Christian neighbor, and it's because they say, well, if I follow Jesus Christ, i got to mope around just like that guy does all the time. Or if I follow Jesus Christ, I have to be grumpy. Or if I follow Jesus Christ, I have to be judgmental. If I follow Jesus Christ, I have to cut everybody off in my life. And all of a sudden, people do not, number one, want to surrender. But number two, they certainly don't want to try to change who they are and live a moral standard to the highest level. So so the fraud is not willing to give into either of these demands. And they just outright refuse Jesus Christ. That's why it always comes down to, what will you do with Jesus. Always. You ask yourself that same question, what will you do with Jesus? Is Jesus just some good prophet to you? Is he just some good man? Is he just somebody who did incredible miracles? Is he some wise man with great teachings? Or is Jesus Christ God to you? Is he God in man form who you surrender your life to, to be your Lord and Savior? So verse 61, remember, by the way, the gospel is offensive. Okay? That man was offended yesterday in conversation, not by my tone and not by my words, but because of the gospel. 
he was offended. So he can leave all, all up in arms and, and uh, doesn't know yet what more to say. And what I love about that is they always want to leave you with one last point to think on. Like it's now in your ballpark. And I'm like, brother, I'm going to sleep well tonight. So it's not for me to think on. Um, and so here we would find that the gospel is offensive. We don't have to be that element of offense. Verse 61, the reaction of the disciples, it parallels those of the Jews back in verse 41 and 42 because they, uh, they were complaining, they were mumbling. And in verse 61, you notice the omniscience of, of God here, the deity of Christ with that he knew in himself that the disciples were murmuring and so he confronted that. Verse number 63, it says, it is the spirit that quickeneth. He says, the flesh, it profits nothing. Then he continues by saying, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. So the spirit is the one who gives life, the Holy Spirit. And it's the flesh that really counts for nothing. The words that Christ has spoken, they are full of the Holy Spirit and life. That's why, by the way, if you're talking with someone about God's amazing grace in their life and how it can bring them true salvation, they don't understand. They don't want to grasp the reality that it's nothing that their flesh can do. Because we live in a time, or always have lived in a time, mankind has always looked at what they can accomplish so they can wear it as a badge of approval. That's not how the gospel works. The free gift of salvation is given by God through his son Jesus Christ to all who will believe. And so it's not by our works of righteousness. It's not by what we can accomplish. It is by what Christ has done with the finished work of the cross. That's why he says it's the Holy Spirit which gives life. It's the flesh accounts for nothing. The words that Christ has spoken, they're full of the Holy Spirit. They are full of life. And so just as Jesus did in chapter 3 of John, verse number 6, he contrasts the spirit and the flesh. In chapter 3, he says in verse 3, when Jesus answered Nicodemus and said, how can a man be born again? Can he enter back into his mother's womb? And Jesus responds in verse number 3 by saying, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. <laughs> well, then he verse number 5, Jesus answered again, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water. Okay, all of us have been born of water. Uh, we, were, we were born as that beautiful baby and infant and of the Spirit, that baptism of the Holy Spirit, that birth of the Holy Spirit coming within us. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So we find here that unless you were born as a human being and then born of the Holy Spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto you, ye must be born again. Now we think about this gospel it's a very powerful message. And there may be some of you in here who you're just kind of a seeker right now, trying to figure this God thing out. You've watched a lot of people in our society and in our culture who have taken on this religious realm or this religious function. And today, maybe you're just kind of going through those same motions. But our plea with you is that you go to what is the next level from, rela from religion to relationship. Because though Christianity would be documented as yet another part of worldwide religions, it is more about a relationship that is with Jesus Christ, a very personal relationship that he teaches us and guides us through the gift of his Holy Spirit that lives within us. We're getting ready to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Next week will be the Palm Sunday weekend as Jesus entered into Jerusalem and they shouted and praised, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then hours later they would yell, crucify him, crucify him. 
and Jesus was crucified, the most gruesome death on the cross in place for you and me. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was arrested, he was not taken as a hostage and he was not taken as a prisoner. He gave himself willingly to be the ransom and the price for you and me. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you're living among examples of changed lives. People who had all banked their their eternal security on themselves, who were trying to live out life to the best of their own ability, but then Jesus Christ changed them. If that's you, then we would invite you at the end to have conversation with us. In verse 64, we continue, Christ's omniscience again is on full display as John tells us that he knew their hearts from the beginning. How in the world does Jesus know their hearts from the beginning unless he's God and omniscient? By the way, we we would say that I know their heart. We would say, I know their heart. And that's based on what? That's based on just evidence of what they've said or what they've done, or uh, we would like to refer to things based on our past experience, and we'd say, well, I, I know their heart. But the reality is, is it's only God who knows their heart. It's only God who knows our heart. And he doesn't know our heart just in the present by the evidence by which we live. God knew our heart from the beginning of time. God knew that you would be a part of his family, adopted into his priesthood. He knew that before the beginning of time. And we can study that all throughout the New Testament. If, if you have a hard time grasping or understanding that, that God knew before the beginning of time who would be followers of him, then we can sit down and study through the scriptures together, the election of God and how he drew men to himself in his time and in his pattern. Remember, it's the Spirit's work. Flesh accomplishes nothing. So we are nothing in of ourselves. I'm thankful for the faith by which God gives us to believe in him and the receiving of that blessed gift of salvation so that we can be a part of his family. In verse number 66, they respond with outright rejection. They, they obviously found his teaching to be intolerable, and they were unwilling to take the next step and to come by faith to follow him. And so they would turn. They would reject. We know nothing of how many of the second tier of disciples that this was. It just says many. Now, we know there was 5,000 plus who had run to the other side of the Sea of Galilee just to sit down and hear his teachings and to watch his miracles unfold. So if this same group was traveling from place to place to see what was next with this Jesus, there had to have been a lot of people who would reject him at this moment and walk away. F.F. Bruce says this, what they wanted, he would not give. What he offered, they would not receive. The fraudulent disciples. But then secondly, we see in verses 67 through 69, a, a piece of encouragement Because the genuine disciples are on display here. And this is the first time that John records the term of the twelve. Which commonly refers to the apostles in the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, the only other time that John will use this term, other than these several verses in this chapter, is going to be in chapter 20, verse number 24. So Christ is going to use the, the flaws of the fraudulent disciples to contrast the faith... Of the twelve, it's in complete opposite directions. The fraudulent disciple doesn't like what they've heard. They can't accept it, and so they reject Jesus Christ. The twelve, on the other side, show this incredible, amazing faith. And Christ is going to use this flaw to teach something very important. Jesus asks this pointed question, do you guys 
want to go to? You ever been in that place of disappointment? Maybe it was a friend and you said, do you want to you go to? Do, do you want to desert me? And you look around you all of a sudden and you wonder who is going to stay true and firm. So Jesus looks at the 12 and probably with the part that was man of Jesus Christ. Remember, he was 100% God, 100% man, hypostatic union of who Jesus was as God in man form. And so he had elements of humanity. He cried, he was tired, he was weary. And I think it would probably be clear even at this moment, though he knew what was going to happen with this large gathering of people, probably a sense of disappointment. Probably even with the tone that Jesus would use as he looked at his 12 disciples, almost holding back tears of discouragement and disappointment, he says, are you guys going to go too? Peter, as uh, seems to be a spokesman all too often for the disciples, he, he, uh, he perks up and he's going to give the answer to this question, this challenge regarding their level of commitment. This is equivalent, this, this passage here is equivalent to the Caesarea Philippi encounter that Jesus had in the Synoptic Gospels when Jesus dis- declares their final commitment of true discipleship to him. Do you remember Mark chapter 8, verse 34 through 36? Again, Caesarea Philippi, Jesus is with his disciples teaching, and he engages with them, not just the 12, but the many, and he says this. When he called the people unto him, with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for the sake and the gospel, for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? thought about that. That fraudulent disciple that I met yesterday, he was walking on cloud nine because he had just paid $6,000 for a boat that he was going to pass on to his grandson. A gentleman that was just a little bit further past me engaged in a conversation about the boat. Enjoy your boat. Oh, it's not for me. It's for my grandson. Oh, that's a lucky boy. Oh, my family's lucky to have me. I just chuckled. Here's a man that by his own definition has gained the whole world. If you heard about the cruise that he's getting ready to take and stop after stop after stop, you'd think, here's a man on top of the world. Throwing out the dollar bills. Told me about his wife of 55 years. She's going to stay behind. He's going on this cruise, and he's going to have a suite for on a cruise. He said, so there's plenty of room for the extra ladies I'm going to find while on this. A man on top of the world. I looked him in his eyes. I said, your wife just begging you to be a straight man. She's just asking you to do what is right. Ah, she doesn't need that. That's a hard man who feels like he's on top of the world, who thinks he's gained everything, but he's lost it all. The truth is, as Jesus very pointedly says, the difference between the fraudulent disciple and the genuine disciple is the one who is going to give his life and gain it all. Instead of the person who's going to save his life, hoard his life, and take it all in while he's here on life, that's the individual who will lose it all for eternity. He says, what profits a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? A clear proclamation with the the words of eternal life. We have nowhere else to turn. Your words give eternal life. 
And he gives this response of true faith and faithfulness. Look at the text. We see in verse number 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Whom shall we go is not a phrase of like, you're all we've got. We're not going anywhere. No, the phrase is, where else can we go to have this? We believe. So we have believed in you. We're living out this belief today. And he says, and we are sure that thou art that Christ, which is the Messiah, and the Son of the living God, Trinity of the Godhead, part of the Godhead. So here, the respond with this true faith, we have believed this demonstrates their spiritual birth that has already taken place. They have responded with faithfulness, Lord, to whom shall we go? This demonstrates their character. By the way, Christian, how are you living out your true faith and your faithfulness? Your true faith demonstrates your spiritual birth, that you've put all your trust, you've surrendered to Jesus Christ, and you're living in that moral high standard of being like Jesus Christ. And then this true faithfulness or this living of faithfulness is demonstrating your character. What is causing you to function every day? Now, the thought to concentrate on here with this genuine disciple is the word focus. Like, like what is our focus? Where are our eyes fixed? The disciples, their eyes were fixed on him. Uh, Peter's already learned that. Remember, we jumped back a couple of chapters, and we're going to find in, I think it's Matthew, right before the, the, um, the encounter with the feeding of the 5,000, or maybe right after, I can't remember, but in the book of Matthew, we see that Jesus, or Peter walked on the water towards Jesus, and he took his eyes off of Jesus and learned the hard way he's going to sink. He's going to be destroyed when he takes his eyes off of Jesus. So their focus is right. Now, remember, As we're saying this, we know there's an asterisk to every statement when I say these 12 had true faith and faithfulness. Asterisk, except for Judas Iscariot, okay? We know that, okay? We're going to come to that in just a moment. But here, this group is one that has the right focus. Have you ever ever thought about where your focus is? Um, This past Wednesday, we studied Galatians 3, and if you were here Wednesday night in the Bible study, I want to be a little redundant, so please forgive me, but it's important truth for, I think, our church family to hear. We are talking and studying about the constant gospel. I said it in the beginning of the call to worship, the constant gospel, which has the power to save us, but it continues in our life all the way and gives us the victories each and every day to live for him. It's what gives us the growth process in our life to be more like Jesus Christ. So when we look at this Galatians chapter 3, we would ask the questions about this focus is where is our focus in the area of our sin? I think we brought it up on Wednesday night that we talk about so often when we disobey and we rebel against God's will and God's way, we always blame it on our willpower. We say, well, I, you know, tomorrow's a new day and I will, uh, I'll have better willpower and I will win. I will have strength to win. And so we always go back to that, and we can will ourselves to win tomorrow, the next day. We'll do better. And we use all of these excuses. Well, what the constant gospel does in our life is that instead of resolving to do harder tomorrow or to do more today, because that's relying on the efforts of human, mankind, that's relying on our own efforts, and it's also relying on the rules and regulations of the law, We must, however, realize that the root of all of our disobedience is specific in the ways that we seek control of our own lives. And what happens then is we have these functional saviors that take over in our life. 
When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you took him as your Lord and your Savior. He's become your Savior. But then we live our Christian life, and all of a sudden now functional saviors pop in because we want to control our lives. We want to guide our life. We want to be in charge of our life. And so all of a sudden these functional saviors look a little different because um, we've got comfort is a functional savior. Um, We talk about approval or control or security or relationships or success. All of these are functional saviors that cause me then to focus on, and when someone or something gets in the way of my functional savior, that's when I get robbed. I'm using this, and when we think of our struggles in life, let's just use the example of anger. So if I'm using this, and my functional savior is on control, when something gets in the way of that control, that causes me to become angry with him, or with that, whatever it is. And then because that's getting in the way of my control, that's getting in the way of what I, what I count as my savior that makes me feel good. So then we've become disaligned. We're, we're out, of, out of line, we're out of function. So what the constant gospel does though is it tells us to align ourselves with the gospel. So it tells us that we compare ourselves not with others and not with the functional saviors, but that we rely truly on our one savior. I even reminded the church family, let's quit asking God to give us the power to overcome temptation. Acts chapter 1a, God already promised. Jesus said to his disciples that the the power of the Holy Spirit is going to come on you. So when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the power of God is on you. Remember what Paul had to write to Timothy and he says, God's not giving you a spirit or attitude of fear, but on the other hand, he's given you the attitude and spirit of power, of love, and of clear thinking, a sound mind. So we get all riled up with all of our functional saviors that we think that we've got to figure this out on our own and instead of depending on Christ. Our focus gets out of whack. So here we would learn that the genuine disciple has their focus aligned with the constant gospel that is working in our lives. And verse number 69, he says, we believe... And we are sure that thou art that Christ, the son of the living God. The genuine disciple responds to God's work in their heart. Think back with me. When was the last time you saw God's work in your heart? When was the last time? Now, sometimes we, we look back and we can see patterns in our life. We say, we ask parents, when was the last time that you sat down with your son or your daughter and you just had a really good um, undistracted conversation with them. And you start to think back, and like, okay, well, we had a really busy week, and then the week after that, or the week before that was really, okay, so probably about two and a half weeks ago, but it was a really good time, okay? So yeah, we're tracing it back. We're saying, okay, there was a moment where you had a sit-down, undistracted conversation. Then we ask this question. When was the last time you guys had a sit-down meal together as a family and just uh, removed the stress of the day and had conversations together? Okay, well, that would have been like uh, last Tuesday or two Tuesdays. Yeah, uh, oh, no, yesterday, yeah. Okay, we say, oh, yeah, it was yesterday. Okay, good. You can, you can follow those patterns. You can see the different things that you do. When was the last time you told your wife that you really appreciate her and that you love her? And you say, well, that, that, was, that was like 43 years ago at the, at the altar. Yeah, that was, I remember exactly when that was, the day we got married, Okay. So we can see these different things. So now we would ask ourselves this reflective question that says, When was the last time you remember God doing a work in your heart? And what was that? 
We talk about the Holy Spirit's power working within us, but so often we quench the Holy Spirit and, um, and we, close, we close the Holy Spirit's work. Um, and when we see this work too often, the genuine disciple is not living out a full surrender to God in their life. So that leads us to the third one, which we're not really surprised by this because we all know the end of the story. We know what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane for just some lousy 30 pieces of silver Judas has betrayed. Jesus is going to use many times throughout his interaction with his 12 to warn them or tell them that there's a traitor within them. Here he's just going to shoot out and say that he's a devil. Um, and he says, he, he spake of Judas Iscariot. Have not I chosen you 12, but one of you is a devil. So this is the imitation disciple. This is the disciple that has been with them through thick and thin. This is the one who has heard every teaching Jesus taught them. This is Judas who sat on the front row in the synagogue while Jesus would teach. This is the Judas who was engaged with the 12 when they would go out two by two to preach the gospel and to perform miracles. This is the Judas that would come back and sit in the boat next to Jesus and tell them all about the encounters and experiences that they had on their mission trip. This is the same Judas that would get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and see Jesus moved with compassion and want to heal and want to talk and want to teach and want to perform miracles and want to spend time with people. That's this same Judas. This is not Judas sitting in the back of the boat with his arms crossed with a big scowl on his face saying, I can't stand my life. That's not Judas. That's not Judas getting out of the boat and, and yelling and cursing at everybody, telling them, would you just leave so we can have some time alone? That's not Judas. This is not the Judas that is going to cause problems. By the way, this is not the Judas that has an issue like James and John on who's going to have a better seat uh, but next to the Judas. This is not the Judas that, like Peter, was always sticking his foot in his mouth. This is Judas who participated in everything he needed to. This is, in Ju- this is the Judas who was an imitation, he was a fake. Now, I, I, I can't stand imitation products, okay? Um, now, don't think I'm a snob, okay, because I pass up the great value brand at Walmart, okay? Um, but if I want a Coke, I'm going to go for a Coke. If I want a Pepsi, it's going to be a Pepsi. If I want a Reese's peanut butter, if I want a peanut butter cup, it's going to be Reese's peanut butter cup. Don't give me some other peanut butter cup made by some other chocolate company, um, I, w- I had the privilege to work in the nursery this morning during the Sunday school hour. And Abel, was it Abel? Who's got the Nikes on? Or was it Finn? Finn or Abel? They got some little Nikes on. And as I was playing with them and saw his little Nikes, I thought about the brand I saw last night called Hikey. All right? And it's, it's, it's kind of really messed up. And it's like, hey, maybe I'll take some Hikeys and I will wear them, right? So we don't like imitation brands. Nobody wants that. And this is a place where the betrayer will try so hard to deceive until one day they cannot hide it anymore. They respond with a very temporary, shallow faith. It lacks authentic change. Now, the call to discipleship is a choice of sacrifice and stamina. Let's never forget that. The call to discipleship, true discipleship, you and I as a follower of Jesus Christ, not ministry, not program, it is a following of Jesus Christ. That's discipleship. So when I look at this, I know that it is a call to sacrifice and to stamina. The question 
In John 6, verse 35, it says, And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. So when this week will you most need to remember this, that true discipleship is about sacrifice and stamina, and our fulfillment comes in Jesus Christ alone. How does enjoying a secure salvation undermine the need or excuse for grumbling? Some of us love to grumble, and we'll find anything and everything to grumble about. I was driving to church today, and uh, sometimes we look at fillers, uh, filler statements about weather. Ah, beautiful day. But I was driving, it was real cloudy, and I thought, oh, cloudy Sunday. And I thought, man, if I was driving, it was bright and sunny, and it was too warm that the air conditioner couldn't keep up, I'd be like, man, a hot Sunday. Or if it was raining, I'd be like, ah, a wet Sunday. Or if it was cold, I'd be like, well, this is April, it's Florida, go on, a cold Sunday. We always find something to murmur and to complain about. So it undermines the need or the excuse to grumble. Christian, we really don't have anything to complain about. So how does Jesus, with his teaching here, cause us to love him more? That focus, his mission, call them to deny themselves to take up their cross and follow him. Where are you today? Fraudulent, genuine, imitation. May we be a church, a people that are genuine followers of Jesus Christ.